Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Kids Inc. podcast. I'm your host, Susan Yeager. This is episode three, part one. And as you can tell, things are a little different if you are watching this on YouTube. If you're listening, it sounds the same right now. But if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see I am on video. This is a first, but uh, this is a very special conversation. And I wanted you guys to see as much of it as possible. So I have a special guest for you. And just sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Hey, everyone. I am here with writer, producer, director Tom Lynch. You know him from The Secret World of Alex Mack, Make It Pop, South of Nowhere, amongst a whole slew of other things. But we know and love him best for breathing more life into our beloved Kids Incorporated. So we are going to chat with Tom Lynch about all things, our favorite subject, Kids Incorporated. Thank you for talking with me about my favorite subject. Susan, it is always a pleasure to be with you. You, uh, We have traveled mightily over the past (laughs) 35 years, is it? (laughs) I don't even want to talk about it. But yes, yes, yes. And what a travel it has been. Thank you. Yes, it has. Thank you. I want to start a little bit. You and I have actually talked about this before. I know a little bit of your background, but how did you fall in and get introduced into this business you love so much? And why, why was producing one of the first things you wanted to get into? Well, the first thing I got into was I, I wasn't May. I was about 18 years old and I was living in Los Angeles and college wasn't in, in, I wasn't making it in college. My brain wasn't working that way. And uh, I was a gardener. I actually was the guy with a mow and I mowed people's lawns. And uh, wow. I, I wanted to, I sailed a boat in my young age from Hawaii to California. And on that trip, I said, what do I want to do in life? Well, I want to meet a lot of girls. I'm 18. <laughs> I want to make a lot of money and I want to travel the world. Cause I was, a, I was more of a we came from a family of very little means. And the the day I landed, the night after I landed the boat, I met a young lady who became my wife and I've been with her 49 years. So a lot of girls- Oh my gosh. I was gone. That didn't happen. <laughs> uh, Rule that out. I, yeah. But I, 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 something told me innately that people made, were wealthy that worked in films and television. That's what people had. So I said to myself, I'm going to go make movies. And I had no idea what that was. I had no idea what that meant. And a person whose lawn I was doing, Irma Jean Rael, she was a recording artist and I was her gardener. She said, oh, I have a friend that's going to stage manage this thing at the Santa Monica Civic. She'll let you in. And I went down there. I was going to be on the list. And this was after a year of filling out applications at every studio and trying to get something. And I showed up at the back of the Santa Monica Civic, the artist entrance, and the guy looks at me and he goes, I go, Tom Lynch, I'm on the list. I thought it was such a big shot that I knew somebody. (laughs) And they go, you're not on the list. I'm like, no, it's got to be, you're not on the list. And I turned around and walked away. And the defining moment of my life and has dictated everything was, I walked around the corner and there was a big dumpster that had a bunch of boxes. I took a bunch of empty boxes. I walked to the same security guard and I said, I have a delivery for blah, 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 blah. And I walked right (laughs) past them just right past them. And I walked down the artist alley, which was empty and it opened up. There was lights, cameras, dancers, and on stage was Elton John and Diana Ross. And I'm going, I don't know what this is, but I'm not leaving it. And it was the Don Kirshner's first rock music awards. And I stayed there and I worked three days. I just saw this little guy who was delivering drinks to the dressing rooms. And I knew 
well, that's, uh, let me go. I walked up, I said, hi, I'm Tommy. I work for you. And he had me cleaning up dressing rooms and sweeping the stages. And three days later, the show was over. And um, I showed up there and nobody was there. I'm like, uh-oh, it all went away. And then I found a contact list, you know, the, where everybody's name on. It said Don Kirshner Productions. And I went to that office on Sunset Boulevard every day for three months at 9 a.m. every day and said, do you have a job for me? Because they were the only people I knew. And it, that was it. I didn't know anybody. And after three months, they finally said, all right, all right, $75 a week. You can be a runner. And uh, at that time, I didn't have a car. So being a runner meant I ran up and down Sunset Boulevard delivering oh. messages. Oh, my now, God. Now, a funny side story to that is that I was on, so I was the runner on the, the Rock Music Awards, and some man pointed at me and said, he'll fit the uniform. They took me away. They fitted me into this kind of livered, uh, you know, chauffeur outfit. And if you look at, it's on YouTube, the opening of the Don Kirshner Rock Music Awards, you will see me dressed as a, <laughs> as a chauffeur driving Elton John and Diana Ross on stage. And You're that was kidding. the beginning of my showbiz career. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that explains so much though of why you are so good to people like me when I write and say, do you have anything for me? That explains so much about why you are so good oh, to everyone else. But that that's a fabulous story. Um, after that, like, well, what else were some of your credits before Kids Incorporated? And a lot of them well, were music. Was that on purpose? Yes. Yeah, music. When I worked with Don Kirshner for about seven years, and we'd work nine months a year on the TV show, and then you'd go into hiatus for three months, and I'd work on other things. And during that time, and I don't know if this is the correct order, uh, I started uh, as part of my job at Kirshner as I moved up from runner to production manager to talent coordinator. I kind of they kind of moved me up in a traditional way because uh, back then shows would go on. You'd get 26 episode orders. You know, now people with 10 episode orders, I don't know if they're mm -hmm. getting that time to grow as much. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things I did was um, I'd have to look at comics at the comedy store and the improv. And I thought, oh, that's cool. And I started writing jokes to supplement my income for $20 a joke. And so I'd hang out in the back of the improv, the Laugh Factory, the comedy store, and I'd have a list of jokes and hand them to a comic and say, hey, try these jokes. And the wow. deal was they only paid you if the joke worked. So some oh. comic could give you 10 jokes, you'd give 10 jokes to or five jokes to, and they'd come off, they go, these two didn't work. I go, they, yeah, they worked. You killed them. You didn't do it right. And, blah, blah, blah. and you'd haggle for your 20 bucks. And oh uh, I did that for a while. And then I worked on other shows, like on the weekends to make a little more money. I worked on game shows, the Joker Wild, uh, Tic-Tac-Doe. And that was the oddest job because we shot that at CBS Television City. And I was the guy that sat next to the union guy. And someone would tell me, press the red button. And then I would tell the union guy, press the red button because I couldn't do it. And we did that. And I kind of learned a little bit about what a game show was. And I, they're very tricky and they're, they have to be very balanced. Um, I started because of music. I found myself directing music videos for friends that I knew. Lee Scalar, who was a bass player for Linda Ronstadt. I directed his music video voice and heart who wrote songs for the Archies and in between would produce uh, music videos like Linda Ronstadt with Nelson Riddle Orchestra, some Van Halen things. It, this is all over a period of seven or eight years from when I started to not, but I think my rise was pretty classical 
in that uh, Don Kirshner, who at that time was uh, like a Dick Clark or Don Cornelius, you know, kind of a big music TV person, that I was at the beginning of the music television experience. We had Don Kirshner's rock concert, which was the first show to do a weekly rock concert show. So it impacted me immensely. And I got to see this whole new industry build up. And, uh, and I was fortunate that I was able to rise up from runner to ultimately I became producer of the show series. And I was also the senior executive in charge of television for Don Kirshner. So. Wow. And that's where it all started. Where it all started. That's why that's music is always crazy. a big part of me. I always enjoy music to be part of the show. Now, I always thought you were somehow involved in the creation of Kids Incorporated. But then someone just told me that the Hollywood Reporter said you came in after the beginning. So I want to hear the story from you because I I didn't know that. Of course. No, it was this version of Kids Incorporated I created. There's no dispute of that. What happened before was they did somebody did a show where they had kids and part of our cast members were in it were KTL records, I think financed it to do a video of kids singing hit songs. Mm-hmm. So it was like uh, like a kid's bop or mm-hmm. kid's pop kind mm-hmm. of a thing. So they came to me because of my music experience. MGM wanted to do the show. Uh, KTL was the record company involved, which was an old kind of like late night. You'd see them late night on television. They'd sell the KTL hits or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And they said, we'd like you to do this show. Uh, we're thinking of doing this show. And I go, well, there's no show here because there's no story here. It's just kids right. singing hit songs. That's not interesting to me. Uh, I'm sure I didn't say that that confidently at the time, but I knew <laughs> I, I needed a job. You know what your problem is. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I think I said, uh, I said, look, you have to write a story to this. And a phenomena of that show was that my son was born. When did Kids Inc. come on in 84? Um, yeah, it, it, de- it debuted in syndication in 84, the fall. So I'm not exactly sure. Did you do the beginning of the year before? It may be 83 or? Yeah, I just remember somehow my first son, Thomas, was born, who you've met. I think you saw him as yeah. a little boy on the set mm-hmm. early on. And he is in a Kids Inc. episode. We have him as little kids in there. Um, yes. I think that the mythology that I have and my memory is not right is that I didn't know what to do with it. I needed the job and he was born and I had to go home from the hospital. So I was all pumped up and uh, I sat down and wrote kids incorporated as a story. Mm-hmm. And that was that first episode that went out there. And that's what, that's what ended up getting made. Wow. An interesting twist in that is that, uh, and I, Carmi Slotnick, who was head of HBO production and head of Stars production, and now is a big producer at Apple, he actually wrote the first, him and a partner wrote that first, whatever that first special was, I would call right. it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that till years later. And we ran into each other and talked about it. And he, uh, he was probably as influential as anybody in that first thing, but I didn't mm-hmm. do that first thing. That to me okay. looked like they were duplicating videos. I remember a right. police video. They tried to make it look like the police. And I had no yes. interest in that. Yes. I wanted it to be about five kids that on their own were figuring out life. And they did it through mm-hmm. music. And that was truly, that was my, what I brought to the party, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had always wondered how it got scaled down from, mm-hmm. you know, I, I 
said in the first podcast, and I hope I don't upset anyone, but it was kind of a mess compared to what it got pared down to. Right. So right. what were your initial goals for your version of the series? What were you hoping to accomplish with it? What I wanted to do at that time, if you remember on kids television, it was pretty bleak. There was mm -hmm. some version in the 60s, I think they did the um, the Mickey Mouse Club, that version mm -hmm. where they always looked to me like they were outside at a ranch or something from my memory. Yeah. Right. All the other kids shows were a lot of PBS influence, which was a different kind of thing because PBS was government funded and they had to hit a curriculum and that kind of stuff. So it was never, I always categorize that as TV that's good for you and not necessarily good. Not mm -hmm. even though they've done great things at that time in the hubris of my youth, you know, I had opinions on everything that I knew nothing about. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, um, and then there was, there's these, what they called wraparound shows where you'd have an R in West Hollywood, right? When Los Angeles, where I grew up, uh, they had Sheriff John and he'd come on like a sheriff and then play cartoons and stuff. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing that spoke to kids in their language. And that's what I picked up on. I, for some reason, I wanted to hear their voice or felt comfortable with their voice. And my goal was to, um, to do a show that would be truly a kid's show and not a show where adults talk down to kids. That mm -hmm. was very clear in my mind. Mm -hmm. The second part was I wanted to tell stories. I didn't consider myself as good a writer at that time. And I wasn't that, but I knew that the power of music I could emotionally take you an audience anywhere. I can make you feel sad, happy, jump dancing, introspective. The power of music always kind of sat in with me. And I thought, why not combine? And MTV was just starting at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, I was doing music mm -hmm. videos, MTV was starting. And I think the original pitch I had was MTV meets the little rascals. That's the show I want to go do. And, mm -hmm. that, and that's what it was. And that's what it became. And if anything, I wanted to tell stories that weren't silly comedies, but stories that actually were stories. They wanted them to be fun and entertaining, but I also wanted them to be identifiable to the audience. Right. And having that appreciation for music, do you remember the first time meeting the kids or even if they auditioned for you or mm -hmm. yeah, what do you clearly. remember about that initial cast and that talent that was there? Yeah, I was, there's a Michael Cruz, did the first special and he was a musical genius mm -hmm. and he and I would have long talks about music and he was as uh had as much conviction for his point of view as I did mm -hmm. and we kind of had this detente as I cast people I just looked to Michael can they sing and if he said no I wouldn't put him in the show I did one time and I had to replace and the second show and I had to replace that. No, no, no. I can make her sing. I can make her sing. And Michael said, you couldn't. Or I think Michael might've been gone by then. Someone else, I said, you couldn't. And when I heard, I'm like, I can't go on. And I literally replaced someone I cast and mm -hmm. had to tell the network I'm replacing them and all that stuff. So that was a, that's a Jennifer Love Hewitt story. We'll save for later. Yes. yes. <laughs> but I, I think with it, I think what came along from the special, I think Martika, Jerry, uh, Stacy was in the special and Renee. I think that we were on the special. I think the one I needed to have somebody of color. I needed somebody diverse in it because even though Martika was Cuban, that wasn't coming off. And I know I knew then before it became popular that a kid's world is 
is diverse. Their point of view is diverse. They're taking everything in for the first time. And so it's a heightened experience. They're not ghettoized, if you will, uh, into like as adults soon become. You know, as adults, we lead our lives. We get the same people and all that stuff. Kids have, a, in my mind, have much more open to what things are coming into them. So that was Rasan Patterson and the kid. And I had to find somebody that was young, could sing, and had a presence to them. And there was a, a woman named Chip Fields, who was uh, Kim Fields' mother and Alexis's field, Alexis, who was in the show and did other shows for me, Kim Fields, who directed some of my other series, subsequent series. Her mother was, was and is my touchstone for all things. And I said, Chip, I got to find a kid that can sing. I got to find a person of color that can sing. I got it. She calls me up. She says, I have the kid. I said, okay where is he or her, whatever. I didn't know. I didn't even care if it was male, female. It didn't even occur to me. I need someone to wow. goes, they're in Brooklyn. I go, Brooklyn, we're in Los <laughs> Angeles. Yeah. You're going to have to fly him out here. And I'm now 56, 27 years old or something, running my own show, not a clue <laughs> to what insane. I'm doing. It's insane, right? That is insane. And, and I now have to go to the studio, to MGM and basically say, yeah, I can't find a kid that sings in L.A. I got to fly this kid in from New York. <laughs> <laughs> we found him. He's in Brooklyn. Right. And they and in those days, it wasn't as easy to have tapes sent to you. Those things didn't quite exist. So we put him on a plane. I somehow talk him into it or I pay for it myself. I'm not sure. But we fly him out. This kid comes in and Chip is with me and Michael Cruz is there. And uh, there's just a piano in the room. We were, I think we were over at ktla or sunset gower one of those stages over there and uh i said great nice to meet you go this kid is so small and so shy that when i'm talking to him i'm going he can't act he cannot act and this is in my head he's too shy he's too reserved it's too new he's not ready and then chip says okay baby let's sing now and the piano starts and this voice i mean was it was just, I'm like, I don't care if this kid can act or not. He sings, <laughs> man. This kid can sing. And uh, and he loosened up. And I learned a very valuable lesson that in casting, especially with young people, their shyness and insecurity is not lack of talent. It's lack of experience of being in that position. So yeah. you got to kind of look a little more through the surface and go a little deeper. But yeah, that's how the kids showed up. Stacy, I think, was there. And Stacy was, I mean... Stacy weighed like 80 pounds or 70 pounds. She was a tiny <laughs> yeah, little thing. Yeah, yeah. And when she sang, it was like this massive voice that came out mm -hmm. that was pitch perfect and all that. So Michael, uh, going back to her song, Michael's in the room. Michael just snapped his head and said, you're not going to get better than that. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. And Michael, mm -hmm. Michael Cruz was a great hero of that series because he not only recorded the kids and produced their songs and wrote a lot of them, he taught them how to work in a studio. He elevated right. them. He really, it, it was not anything that we said, but it was important for us, for all of us involved in the show, that these, that all of our cast being so young. And at that time, there weren't 50 shows on with a young cast. We were one of them, one of maybe two or three. I don't even know what the other ones were, but we, uh, we wanted them to learn how to be a professional and, and yet still keep the generosity of being of youth. So what was that?
I, diversity was a big thing I was going to ask you about, if that was conscious, because even later when the fans all got together, we didn't care. Black, white, so many nationalities, right. gay, right. straight, the fans just didn't care. Right. And right. I think that's just a testament to Kids Incorporated. We didn't care who came on. You right. know, if they were talented, we enjoyed them. And so kudos to you guys for like doing that on purpose because right. it works. <laughs> so. it, it was an interesting time mm -hmm. because it was something that, um, you know how they taught that term microaggression? There's no. a term called microaggression that people use a lot. I've just read it recently where it's like, it's not that you say anything, but it's how you act. It's a mm -hmm. look, it's a breath, mm -hmm. it's a, I don't know, it's, it won't work, it's, it's all that. And looking back in context of today, where diversity is an element of every discussion. It is right. just an element of right. every creative discussion. It is authenticity, diversity. It is part of the conversation. Yeah. Back then it wasn't at all. Right. And right. I can remember one particular show, the first season where there was a black girl dancer and a white boy just sitting in the background of the table on a date. And the executive said to me, would that really happen? I'm like, yeah. Of course yeah. it happened. What are you talking about? And we fought for diversity massively. Not fought for it's the wrong word. We demanded it to be part of our world. There wasn't going right. to go, it was not going to go out without it. And I don't know if it was conscious in my brain, but Michael was Latin doing the music. Michael was Latin. Uh, one of our, um, we'll talk in the back three of those. I came from a world where uh, just being in the music world, diversity mm -hmm. was you were gauged by your talent in right. as far as a hit record came from talent. And I came up at a really good time where um, disco had come in, rock was out there, disco had come in and was becoming the new pop. And on the horizon, hip hop was coming. It was, all, mm -hmm. it was out there. The first hip hop song that I wanted to do, and they didn't let me do it, I, I, and it was a, it was one of the few things where I lost the battle or didn't position it right. It was a song called Rumors. I remember hearing this song, da da da, da Rumors, Rumors yes. every day, yeah. ba, ba, ba. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, wow, that is awesome. And just on the radio, and people are like, no, no, that's not music. That's not music. That's not music. Oh, I'm like, goodness. okay. And so to me, that was my first. And then later on in life, I was fortunate enough to, when I was doing a music video show, Night Tracks, to run into Fab Five Freddy, to understand hip hop and kind of meet Russell Simmons and Lior Cohen and those people. Just seeing what they were doing was really, really mm -hmm. hip. And they were, they, were, they were busting it up, man. There's a whole world of music that was up here still operating like it was the 60s and 70s. And then down below, there was this undercurrent as talent always happens and trends always happen. You're not gonna stop it. And that's what, right. that, that's what that was coming in, so. They were coming through. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll have more with Tom Lynch in Episode 3, Part 2. Stay tuned. Don't forget to visit us on social media, facebook.com forward slash Kids Inc. Podcast, twitter.com forward slash Kids Inc. Podcast, and instagram.com forward slash Kids Inc. Podcast. If you have any questions for Tom Lynch or any of the cast that we might be talking with sometime soon, email us at kidsinkpodcast at gmail.com.
something that 